Hey everyone, welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast presented on All About the Jersey. It's been a crazy couple of weeks here for many, many reasons, but we have some more clarity regarding the NHL's return to action like we talked about last week. And to help me break that down is John Fisher as always. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. I hope everybody is doing well out on this uh, lovely time of the year now that it's warmer, (laughs) sunnier. I'm hoping it's not raining when this gets released, but I assure you, the sun will come out at some point. Yes, exactly. And with that all being said, obviously, we know there's a lot going on in the world right now. You know, by the time this episode goes up, we will have released something on all about the jersey that pretty much encapsulates, you know, our thoughts on the situation and um, our thoughts with everyone that's involved right now. So, you know, no more on that. We we do have the statement to speak for itself, but we have some news to get to regarding information about the return to play for the NHL and there's a devil's angle to this while they may not be directly impacted as there is for the other six teams that won't get to participate in this 2014 playoff and what we learned is that the qualification play-in round is going to be a best of five series and we've also learned that because of that it seems like a lot of teams will be playing a maximum of five games potentially before the start of next year. So there, there's some issues to get into with that. It's it's every, you know, every non-playoff team or every team that loses in the play-in round will play at most five games this offseason until whenever next season is able to start. So I wanted to ask you, what kind of impact do you think that has on every team that not only, you know, when I say maximum of five games, they could easily be eliminated in three, they could easily be eliminated in four. So that could be all the hockey they see from now until January. So how do you bridge that gap in terms of what the practice habits have to be like, what the transactions have to look like? How do you respond if you're one of the 15 teams that won't get to play more hockey with this schedule regularity? Well, the fact of the matter is that if you're a goaltending coach and you're or you're a goaltender, uh, you you better be on because <laughs> everything's going to be reliant on you. I mean, in the playoffs and in hockey in general, if you have a hot goaltender on any given night, you know any team could beat anybody. Because <laughs> if you if you don't let in any goals, hey, that's a massive advantage. As long as your team can get at least one, you win the game. <laughs> so in a short series, like in a playoff series, you know a hot goaltender can make mediocre to okay teams look really great um that's going to be even more amplified in a five best of five format for the qualifying round whereas the four teams that aren't going to be in the qualifying round in each conference they're going to have round robin games there's going to be it's going to be more like exhibition games that we see in training camp more like get everybody in shape get everybody used to the uh the tactics you know remind them you know who the teammates are and where they're (laughs) usually going to supposed to be they're going to have a lot less pressure on them. But for the for the 16 teams that are going to be playing for something, you know, the impetus is absolutely going to be that, hey, goaltender, you better be in shape and you better be ready to bring it from night one onwards because a lot of pressure and a lot of weight is going to be on your back, whether you like it or not. And in terms of those four teams, you know, the top four in each conference that qualified for this playing around Robin, how much do you think they're using these games specifically as a tune-up? And how much do you think they care about the seeding aspect of it? Because the round Robin is meant to determine seeding in the playoff picture, which, yes, it leads to home ice, but it's a little bit different given that they'll be in a hub city. The advantage isn't quite the same. So are these teams just looking to do more of a tune-up with the round Robin games against some tough opposition? Or do you think they're going to legitimately be concerned with their seating for the playoffs i think they're going to be it, it's it's easy to say from an outset to say well it doesn't matter that much because you know you know 
you know, who, if you're a good team, you should be able to play against anybody. But once, once the puck drops, the competition level tends to pick up. Mm. And that's just, that's just the nature of a lot of professional athletes. It's almost a, a requirement uh, if you're <laughs> going to make it to this level of, uh, of your sport. So I think once the, once the games start, there'll definitely be a lot more serious and a lot more value to it. And don't discount the fact that yes, home ice, not necessarily being in your home per se, but having the last change, having it, that tends to be a pretty important um, thing for matchups. And as we've seen over the past 15, 20 years is that coaches love to match up. Coaches want to have that matchup. They want to be able to get the matchups they prefer. And given that everybody's going to be starting from a very similar standpoint with respect to fatigue, with respect to conditioning, with respect to um, mentality, any little advantage that you can get will help. So, and also keep in mind that since they're going to be doing reseeding, imagine if you're the team that finishes fourth in the round robin and instead of, you know, you draw number five or maybe you draw an upstart number six or number seven seed because they got a hot goaltender. You know, your mentality is going to definitely change. And believe me, everybody's going to be watching all these other games. Like Mm -hmm. if you're one of these teams involved, if you're a round robin team, you are absolutely paying attention to the qualifying rounds because that's that's potentially your opponent. And it could be a bunch of different players. It's not just going to be necessarily number five in the conference or number seven in the conference, because for all you know, you're taking on a hot number 10 or a hot number 11. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's exactly it. This year, the seeding, you know, and, and hockey typically seeding. Yeah, it's indicative of obviously how the regular season went, but team strength to a degree. Granted, in the playoffs, there's been way more upsets than, say, something like football or basketball uh, in hockey just because of, um, you know, the parity we've seen these last couple of years, uh, teams beating each other in the playoffs. We saw Columbus take out one of the best regular season teams of all time in a sweep last year. So I think more so this year than ever, the seeding kind of means nothing. It, It just is an indication of who actually got in. And from that point, it's a free-for-all, basically, because the it's basically like starting a new season, except for your personnel didn't change from the last season. There's no transactions that impacted the rosters that already existed. So it is essentially a fresh start for a lot of teams who get to use the period of regular season that they had as, you know, here's in our time away, here's what we learned about our team. Here's how we can make that a playoff success. And th- that's why I think a lot of people are suddenly worried about teams like the Montreal Canadiens who had no chance to get into the playoffs. All of a sudden, they could be the reason that their team, who was looking rock solid for a spot in the top 16, is suddenly having a very, very long offseason after three or four games. Exactly. And, you know, that's that's why I immediately went to goaltending mm-hmm. as, as sort of the big thing to start out front, because as we've seen, and I'm glad you brought up Montreal, because the last two times they won a Stanley Cup, it was on the back of Patrick Waugh playing out of his mind. Now, that's not to disrespect Matt's, Matt's Naslin or Claude Lemieux or Kirk Muller and other playoff heroes of the 86 and the 93 teams, but... That was pretty much driven by Patrick Waugh. <laughs> and, and and that's a good example as any of how a hot goaltender can take you a lot further than you were otherwise uh, expected to do. And I hate to bring this up because we're Devils fans, but this was also the story of the 2012 Kings that struggled throughout most of the season until Jonathan Quick got hot. Everybody started getting it together and then they went through the entire playoffs like a buzzsaw. Yeah, and I just didn't want to acknowledge our hated rivals because they're also one of those teams that has the potential to surprise and upset a lot of people and well we already know that carolina didn't want to play them at all exactly so they're offering their own convoluted playoff format just so they could avoid playing our hated rivals well carolina may be cowards but they're not dumb true (laughs) 
they, they may they may you know get a lot of flack from the league for proposing an entirely different format than everyone else and being one of two teams to vote against the format because essentially they don't want to play the Rangers. But listen, there's a reason they don't want to do that, and I think a lot of teams are seeing the way this format has aligned with that short series at the beginning, it's amazing the difference that the leeway of one game can make in between, you know, best to best of seven and best of five. That's a whole different mentality to prepare yourself for way less margin of error, especially coming back from such a long layoff. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think you could really call a lot of things an upset at this point, just because everyone's been away for so long that it exactly. resets the feeling of it. So it's pretty open and free playoffs. It's just a bummer that the Devils won't get to participate. But we should look back, actually, at this point <laughs> as to why the Devils won't get to participate in this playoff season, this playoff tournament that comes at a time in the world unlike any other. And guess what? The Devils are going to be doing exactly what they've been doing for months. Well, the players are. Hopefully the executives aren't. Yeah, the executives have some things to do, like hiring a GM, hiring a coach, deciding what they're going to do with the scouts. You know, they, they have things to do. They mm-hmm. have a to do list. Um, yeah, let's let's let me be upfront about this, Dan. This is this is a personal beef I have. You know, there are a lot of fans online that like to use the word mediocre to describe things that are truly bad. <laughs> and I have a problem with this, Dan, because mediocre implies average. Mediocre implies okayness. You know, like if I said, you know what, I had a mediocre lunch, I'm not saying I hated my lunch, Dan, or that it wasn't tasty or delicious, or that even if I would never have it again. I, it was just it was just lunch. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was fine. That's fine. In the NHL, right now there are 31 teams. There are 16 playoff spots. So being a mediocre team means you're in the mix for making the playoffs, mm-hmm. if not being in the playoffs. And the Devils have not come close to making the playoffs in quite some time. <laughs> they were outside of 19, I'm sorry, 2018, the Devils have missed the playoffs by a healthy margin for most of the Ray Shero John Hines era. Mm-hmm. And this past season was another clear-cut example of this because this team was dead in the water by by the time the calendar turned to 2020. So miss me with this mediocre nonsense. This was a bad season. And what makes it especially hurt, Dan, is that we expected so much more in theory, on paper. It looked like all the right moves were being made. There were good moves, aggressive moves, moves that I would still defend even to this day, Dan. (laughs) But we have to look at reality instead of going back to what we were wishing for. And the reality was this was a bad season. I think in terms of most disappointing teams in the league, if you ask anyone this season, the top teams on the list are going to be the Devils and the Sharks. I think there's... What'd you say? Absolutely. Yeah, I think those two, just far and away, in terms of preseason expectations and actual season performance, dropped off further than anyone thought imaginable. Like, yes, the Devils were coming in having not been a playoff team consistently for a while as well, but they had just made it two years prior. And also, you know, San Jose was a perennial contender. They were extremely disappointing. But for us, the Eastern Conference most disappointing team, it's got to be New Jersey. And for so many reasons, other than it seemed like every move that was made this offseason went the worst possible way it could have, except I would say Gusev turning it around uh, in the second half of the season. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because uh, last week we at All About the Jersey yourself and myself included, uh, voted for our annual tradition of awarding, well, awards about the, <laughs> about the previous season. I wish there was a 
catchier way of saying it, but we're just going to roll with it. I'm a hockey blogger. I can make this work. So on the site, we issued out our versions of the major awards like MVP, best defenseman and so forth. And we also have other awards that we at the site um, have come up with over the years and have been voting on. So I think a good way to eulogize this past season, because to be honest, if we're going to look at reality, we do have to acknowledge that there were some bright spots in the season. Mm -hmm. There were some positive things in the season. There are some reasons to think that everything is going to be better Hopefully. Well, if you strip the context, too, we had one of the best goals ever scored by a devil. So that's pretty cool. This is true. (laughs) This this is very true. So let's let's go through the awards because that would be a good way to summarize the season that was as we enter a very, very long offseason for the New Jersey Devils. Let's do it. Okay. So we'll start with the major awards. So Team MVP. Team MVP was an interesting one, but I believe that I gave my vote to Mackenzie Blackwood. And it was either him or Blake Coleman, because for the entire point of the season before Coleman was traded, he was a major part of the offensive engine of the Devils. And Mackenzie Blackwood was pretty much the reason that Nazardine's getting any sort of praise for his handling of the second half of the season. And you are absolutely correct, Dan. And my thoughts actually mirror yours. My cho- my vote went to Blackwood as well. And uh, my second choice, if I had it, well, I'm the manager of the side. I could have had a second choice. You have choice as many choices as you want. <laughs> it's, good, it's good to be the man with the power, Dan. Um, <laughs> but more seriously, I would have given it to Coleman. But uh, most of the writers did agree that Blackwood was the MVP of the season. There was a little dissension. Two people did pick the pride of Montvale, New Jersey, Kyle Palmieri. And one picked uh, Nico Heischer, actually. But I think Blackwood is the correct choice. Yes, he started the season poor like everybody on the Devils, but he absolutely turned it around. Uh, just to give you an example, when the calendar was turning to 2020, the, you know, by the time the Devils were entering New Year's Day, the Devils had the fourth worst five-on-five save percentage in the entire league at 90.45%. By the time we get to the pause, or the end of the Devils season, as we now know it, the Devils have the 10th best 5-on-5 save percentage (laughs) at 92.23%. And that is largely driven by the absolutely great performance by Mackenzie Blackwood, who finished his season, and this does include the 2019 rough start that he had, with a 92.6 5-on-5 save percentage and a goal saved above average uh, value of plus 8.42, which is meaning that he stopped more, at least eight goals more than an average goaltender would have stopped. That was also <laughs> a top 10 rate. So the point I'm trying to make here is that Blackwood played out of his mind in 2020, and he was one of the few bright spots in a very dismal devil season. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that in itself is enough to warrant a couple more awards for him, but we'll get to those. Yes, in fact, we'll get to it right now. There the best go. goaltender. It's him. Don. Yeah, of course. It wasn't going to be Schneider, it wasn't going to be Domingue, and it wasn't going to be Gillis Sen for a hot minute. I know Schneider had his uh, glorious six-game moment there that he does every season, but nope, the rest happening. of it was bad. <laughs> yes, he was demoted, Yes, and, it was, and, and nobody claimed him, and that's all you can say about that. So let's you move know on what, to props something. to him for handling it all, though. Like he, well, All yeah. we've ever heard about Schneider is that he's been a consummate professional through all this, and I think a lot of people would have been broken down mentally from really just the worst, the worst starts of the season you can imagine. And having been undercut by his team in some cases, there were some, you know, I understand there was a running meme last season. Goals um, for Corey. You know, not only goals for Corey, but, you know, oh, he hasn't won any games. And it's like, and in the Anaheim game, he was doing great. And then his own team scores three goals against him. Like, 
I'm still mad about that, Dan. I stayed up and watched that, and I'm still mad about it. But let's move on to the present, or okay. talking presently about the past, and let's move on to best defenseman. Okay. Best defenseman was an interesting one. Preseason, you could have had a lot of different guesses as to who it would be, but I'm right. pretty sure that Severson ran away with this one, according he to did. our vote and really in the stats. This is very true, and, that's, and and this is a bit of a difficult one in the sense of it's very easy to say defense with this team? <laughs> Who are you talking about? But the harsh reality is that there was just not a lot of good defensemen on this team. Andy Green became old. Well, he has been old, but became it, if, old. If, you didn't, if you didn't think he was past it, this season absolutely proved it. Mirko Mueller is not good enough. Connor Carrick is not good enough. Frederick Clayson's not good enough. And then you had guys, you know, P.K. Subban and Will Butcher. Will Butcher had a great season in 2018-19. He had a really rough one in 2019-20. Subban was a massive disappointment. Vatnin had struggled with injuries, and, you know, he couldn't carry that much. So statistically, Severson ended up the best, even though he still has that tendency of being overly, excuse me, overly aggressive at times and making some odd decisions. And, oh, yeah, that one own goal that cost the team a game. But all things being equal, when he's on the ice, the Devils are playing better defensively than anyone else. So mm-hmm. he was he was the unanimous choice, even though we're not saying Severson's amazing. We're just saying he was the best of a not-so-hot bunch. We just didn't see enough of Dakota Mermis is the answer. <laughs> Dakota Mermis is not the answer to anything other than who is the devil on the team that was named after a state. There you go. So North Dakota Mermis doesn't come close to Damon Severson this time around for best defenseman. Congratulations to Severson. If he becomes the version of best defenseman on the Devils, that is uh, as good enough, as good as a first line pairing on another team, then we should be so blessed. All right, so let's move on to the forwards, and we typically split this up between the offensive and the defensive forwards. And I know in the in the larger NHL award context, they have a defensive forward award, but they. But that's more based on reputation than anything else. And then there's not really an offensive forward award. You have the Art Ross, you have the Rocket Richard, but you don't have somebody who's like, yeah, this guy was the best offensive player. But we do that at All About the Jersey. So for the best offensive forward award, uh, this was awarded to the pride of Montvale, New Jersey, Kyle Palmieri. And deservedly so. He continues to be a consistent goal scorer, continues to be a voice in the Devils community. He He's pretty much as stalwart as you can have on someone's wing for a team that has two young centers. They just have to find a way to utilize them properly, but he still found a way to find the back of the net, played hard every night. There's, you know, not much you can say bad about Kyle Palmieri. Well, I would, well, I was one of the few people that didn't vote for Kyle Palmieri for this okay. award. Okay. I gave it to Blake Coleman mm-hmm. because Blake Coleman outshot Palmieri. He created more scoring chances than Palmieri. He had more high danger scoring chances. And yes, while well, Palmieri did end up leading the team in goals and points and power play goals. Um, Coleman put up 21 goals in 57 games. So he had a higher rate of goals per game before he was ultimately traded to Tampa Bay. So (laughs) that being said, Palmieri is a perfectly valid choice. And it's arguable that since Coleman has been traded, that Palmieri's role on the team is even more important than ever because who else is going to play right wing on this team? And the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) So Palmieri, so Palmieri, you know, I, I love to use this phrase because it unfortunately describes a lot of devil's hockey over the past decade is in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king mm-hmm. and Palmieri has one eye. I just, uh, yeah, that's a very good way to describe it. That's very, it's sad that it has to come that, to that, but 
here we are. And, you know, Paul Mary, he's he's going to be so important for the development of the kids now, but he's also in an interesting spot because he does have just the one year left on his contract. So do they try to start this thing afresh, or is he one of the veterans that Tom Fitzgerald considers to have alongside the kids to grow? And I don't think there's many better candidates for that specifically than him. Well, that's assuming Tom Fitzgerald is even the GM of the team. That's you know, true, too. GM. A new GM may say, well, Palmieri's not my guy, so let him walk. We're already starting from scratch anyway. So there's an argument to be made on both sides, and that's, a, I think, a debate worth having later on when we have some clarity as far as what, you know, the salary cap and contracts and, oh, yeah, when free agency will start. Oh, and if we know <laughs> if the Devils are going to be bad or not next year. <laughs> that, too. That, that's also a rather crucial part of the conversation. Yes. But it's a conversation worth having in the future. So we shall move over to the best defensive forward. And this one actually was a tight decision among the writers. Mm -hmm. I believe some so, names that were in play were Heischer, Coleman, Zajac. And Zaka. And Zaka. Okay. Oh, for his penalty killing, which is weirdly elite. <laughs> well, the unfortunate thing is that's the only thing he's elite at. <laughs> he, he was not elite at all in five on five, which is where most of your minutes are at. Mm -hmm. uh, the decision was a big split, but Coleman ended up winning this uh 5-4 with the other players that you mentioned, Heischer, Zaka, and Zajac splitting the other four non-Coleman votes. But Coleman was selected as, as the best defensive forward, and it is a statistically legitimate argument to make that. Um, he was the one New Jersey Devil who was the closest to being 50% in Corsi 4, shots for above 50%, one of the few Devils with an expected goals 4% above 50%, which all that means is that when he was on the ice, the Devils actually played like a decent hockey team in five-on-five, five, mm -hmm. as opposed to all the others where they were forced to play defense, which is ironically not what you want in a good defensive player. Uh, good defense means you are for driving play forward. You're not sitting back. Um, but so Coleman was making it happen, and he did this while taking on primary penalty-killing minutes. He was doing it while taking on tough matchups when guys were getting hurt or becoming unavailable, Coleman was thrust up higher in the lineup and did very well in that role. So um, he, he was missed at both ends of the rink for both sides of the game because he did that very well. And it was, again, a big reason why I would consider him my number two choice for MVP of this past season. Yeah, it's, he's going to be a tough one to replace, honestly. He's going to be one of those cult hero devils, I, I feel. It's going to be something that he made such an impression these last couple of years that it was definitely tough to hear of the trade, even though I'm sure at the moment we had a lot of mixed feelings given the return of it, but we'll see how right. that develops later. And I guess we'll get a final determination at some point, whether or not it was worth it. It was just tough to see him go. Exactly. So, you know, at the very least, you know, this is a guy that, you know, was drafted as an overager in the third round in his draft year. He had a torn labrum when he did go pro initially. So, you know, he was well past the quote unquote prime years of his career, uh, by the time he even got to professional hockey, and even that was delayed. So he was definitely a late bloomer who uh, worked his tail off and became a fan favorite. So, you know, at the very least, he he got way further than anybody would have expected way back when he was drafted in the third round out of the Indiana Ice. <laughs> so speaking of guys who were young, let's talk about the best rookie, where the Devils had a lot of quantity, not so much in the level of quality. <laughs> Yeah, so plenty of players got their first appearances for the Devils this year, and uh, there's a few players that qualify as rookies for the league, but not necessarily 
rookie rookies, I think we had this quandary because Blackwood, by the league's definition of a rookie, is easily the best rookie on this team, and there, right. there's no question in terms but of he rookie. Won, but, oh, go ahead. But he won, but, but he won best rookie for our site last year. <laughs> so yeah, we're counting that as his first year of AATJ eligibility, which is fine. And then you have Nikita Gusev, who is overage. Uh, for the NHL rookie criteria, but he was my pick for the best Devils rookie. Right, and it was exasperated by the fact that I never qualified to the other writers of what best rookie meant. I just said best rookie and left it at that. So, right. so that's why it was more of an argument than anything. But the other, but the the, the award did go to Jack Hughes. Uh, it was a plurality. You know, four went for Hughes, three went for Blackwood because I never said you could or couldn't pick Blackwood, and two of them went for Gusev. Um, in terms of first year performance, I would definitely give it to Gusev. But by the definition of Somebody who never won the award before and would be eligible for the Calder, it would have to be Jack Hughes because your other choices just didn't measure up. Not Jesper Bokvist, not Dakota Mermis, not Michael McLeod, not Nick Merkley, not Yane Kalkinen, not Josh Jacobs, and not Colton White. Uh, to put it in perspective that, yes, while we expected more out of Jack Hughes coming out coming into the league at age 18, his seven goals and 21 points and 123 shots – still are much more than all those other rookies I just mentioned combined. They combined for six goals total, 12 points and 82 shots across 70 appearances. Hughes surpassed all that by himself in 61 games. And also it seems that Hughes pissed off some sort of mystic before the season started because I've never seen someone as snake bitten in their first year in the NHL as that guy was. Well, what's even weirder is that the other guys, you know, the handful of other players that jumped into the NHL straight away after the 2019 draft, uh, Capo, uh, Capo Caco. Capo Caco. Yeah, blanked on his name for a hot minute because he plays for our hated rivals. <laughs> he had a struggling first season and by some statistical measurements was the worst player in the NHL, which, you know, I think is kind of harsh. But he, he definitely wasn't that good. And Kirby Doc for uh, or Dotch, however you pronounce it for Chicago, definitely didn't impress in his first season as well. So, I mean, they're 18 year olds. I think in the case of Hughes, there was definitely a lot of turmoil, you know, with changes of coaches changes in management, changes among the players. The fact that the original coach, uh, Hines, decided, hey, we need to stick this hot you know, playmaking center in, in between the hot non-scoring prowesses of Wayne Simmons and Miles Wood. <laughs> um, you know, that definitely did not help. So, I mean, as he gets a little older and a little stronger, he'll be fine as long as the Devils put him in places where he can actually succeed as opposed to places where he's just kind of there. And so, it's a thing where, yeah, you mentioned that draft class wasn't that prominent. The people who were up for rookie of the year were people who had a year of college under their belt. There were people who, uh, you know, the two defensemen, I would say, who got the most consider, who will be getting the most consideration for the Calder are Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr. And they each had college experience in their belts. They each came in a year older right. and wiser than Jack Hughes. So, again, I, before yes. the panic starts, everyone chill out. Exactly. There's no reason to panic. Um, you may want to be a little more concerned about the fact that the other rookies that had their opportunity did not make their most of the opportunity. Uh, Kwakin had accepted since he, you know, just joined the team fairly recently. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We shall see how things go in the future. So let's move on to the more site-specific awards, what I call the minor awards, because they're not 
based on the NHL's top awards. So traditionally, uh, this is one of my favorite named awards, the Sergey Breland Award for versatility. <laughs> Named after the most versatile cult hero in Devil's history, Sergey Breland. And this award went to Nico Heischer, since he lifted a lot of loads this past season. <laughs> uh, not having Hall anymore meant he ha- he got a lot more targets. He got more time on the penalty kill. You would see him in overtime situations. He played in a lot of different spots on the power play, some better than others. And uh, only ha- among all forwards, the only guy who averaged more ice time than Heischer in this past season was Taylor Hall before he was traded. Right. So it's clear that the you know regardless of who was coaching him and who was at top at GM, um, they saw Heischer as an important player that needed to play big minutes, and he played those minutes and was fairly okay at them. So mm-hmm. you know all that's pretty good for a 21 year old on a turmoil ridden team. And I think Coleman has a claim for this award as well. He did. He got one vote. Palmieri got a vote. Uh, Severson got a vote as he led all uh, Devils uh, skaters in ice time. He did take a power play spot away from Butcher and Subban, which is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you told me that before this season, I would have just looked at you blankly, but (laughs) it is what it is. But uh, no, he he sure got the majority vote in this one. All right. Moving on to the best comeback. And um, one person voted no. Three people actually voted nobody. (laughs) It's hard to find a comeback when you've spent the entire season on the ground. Yes, and that's that's part of the reason why I don't tend to tell you like who you could vote for for some of these awards because I just want to see if I just said what was the best comeback, I want your honest opinion. Yeah, and nobody is a valid opinion. Nobody, um, nobody, and the actual winner got the same amount of votes. <laughs> I think I, I, Gusev I is in there. Degusev was the winner, and I deferred to him partially because a he exists, uh, uh, and b his his improvement was legitimate. Because legitimately, um, one of the writers I'm not going to reveal who said this. I know you didn't say this, and I didn't say this, so it's one of the other writers. You can pick your choice. Um, to quote that writer, I'm going a little outside the box since he was never out injured or anything like that. But it's turning around from this guy might not belong to belong in the league to. This guy might be the best player on the roster from October to January. It was pretty remarkable to watch. And I yeah. think that's the best summation for Gusev and why we're still excited for the Goose going forward as opposed to wondering when the contract will end. He was one of those X factors at the beginning of the year that was like, if he can figure out this NHL thing, he'll be really good. And while every other X factor was going in the wrong direction, he actually took the time to figure out this NHL thing. The stakes were very low. And the problem is that while he was doing that, that would have been okay if any of the other factors panned out. And then he could have, you know, caught up by the end of it. But it turns out that by the end of everything that happened this season, he was one of the bright spots of the team. And he becomes a very interesting player moving forward in terms of what the Devils are going to do with him, what the plan is moving forward. But clearly he's, you know, he seems very liked by his teammates and that, reflects in the way he was able to adjust his game. I feel like if he was frustrated the entire time, he wouldn't have had as much of a marked improvement as um, as we did end up seeing from him. Right. As I, as I wrote during this past season, he earned his scratches and demotions, and he could have easily complained. He could have demanded a trade. He could have ran back to Russia or somewhere else, but no, he, per- he understood, he persevered, and he acclimated, and he and his future NHL prospects are much better for it. So, well done. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on to here. Here's a little bit of a contentious one. Best in-season move by the Devils. Um, one vote went to John Hines being fired. 
<laughs> two went with the Taylor Hall trade, but six of them, this is the winner, the Blake Coleman trade to Tampa Bay for Nolan Foote and the conditional first-round pick that uh, that comes with Vancouver. So the reason why this one won is because while Coleman was one of the team's best players, they did get one of Tampa Bay's top prospects. While we didn't rate them very well when we profiled him in his draft year, he really did have a great growing year uh, this past season in juniors and now has a legitimate shot, and I do mean a legitimate shot, literal and figuratively, for the NHL in the future. And the Devils could always use more scoring wingers, so good for that. And if Vancouver beats Minnesota in the qualifying round this year, in, in the next couple months, the Devils get a first round, select, an extra first round pick out of it. So you're getting good value for a guy that you know, was a fan favorite, but you know he's being paid two million a year. Exactly, it was a great, great contract. It was we were sad to see him go just on how he's played. It was a great contract, but the Devils got great value for it. That's I think why that pushes this trade over the edge a little bit. With the Hall trade, they got a bunch of assets out of it, but nothing really that they can consider like a gem. And Nolan Foot, you know, whether or not he pans out, he became immediately a top five prospect for New Jersey. And I can't say that any of the guys they got in the Hall trade uh, were, and they, they have a couple of picks through there as well, but until those picks pan out, just for the value that they were getting and the process that they went through with Hall in the first place, I think the Coleman trade was just something that uh, the value is there right now. Now, if Kevin Ball becomes right. like a, you know, stalwart second or third defenseman, the the trade changes a little bit, especially if Nolan Foote doesn't pan out. But for now, I think we can safely say that value-wise, trading Blake Coleman was not only the right move and a painful move, but probably the best move of the season. Agreed. And I did vote for that one as well. So mm -hmm. I agree with everything you just said. So let's talk about an award that had a lot of different directions going in it uh -huh. for worst in-season move by the Devils. <laughs> I know what I I'm answered for this one. <laughs> And it was apathy. Apathy was the worst in-season move for the Devils. Actually, you're, you're, that was not your vote, Dan. <laughs> that wasn't my vote? No, your vote was part of the winning, the winner of this award, one with just three writers voting for it. So you were one of the lucky three that ended up being correct huh. in terms of who won the vote. But I'm not going to tell you what that is because I'm going to talk about the ones that didn't win, even though I would argue they're all valid contenders for this award. <laughs> okay, remind me. Okay, well, one writer went for the Hall trade because for a player of Hall's skills, the return was lacking. Like, mm -hmm. he didn't get one of Arizona's better prospects. And the conditional picks aren't going to help the Devils now. And, oh, yeah, we may not get that 2020 first rounder from Arizona if they, you know, win a lottery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of – for a player of Hall's skill set, the fact that you got, as you, as you put it, Dan, a lot of assets, but not necessarily a lot of known assets compared to what you got out of the Coleman trade. Speaking of, one writer said the Coleman trade was the worst move because how can you say that trading your best skating player is a good thing? Which is valid. You know, all things considered. Okay. One writer went for the Sammy Vatnin trade, which yielded a very low return. And uh, yes, he may be healthy now to return for the playoffs, but he needs to play a certain percentage of those playoffs. We know that the qualifying round doesn't count as the playoffs. And oh yeah, other players on Carolina are healthy again. So Vatnin may not even be in the lineup. So congratulations, you basically gave away Vatnin for a magic bean. For That's not Quackenden. Oh, and Quackenden, I forgot. If Quackenden turns out well, then I stand to be proven happily wrong. Yeah, I think that was the key of that deal. That's why this one reads a little weird to me. Anyway, but one writer voted for the Vatnin deal. Um, and two writers went for the general manager mess. That was actually my vote. Mm -hmm. And I called it just general manager mess because it encompasses – not only the firing of Ray Sherrill, but 
if Rayshard was really on the hot seat, how did ownership allow him to make that Hall trade mm-hmm. at all? And if ownership trusted Tom Fitzgerald to make the moves that he did make, why not just say he's our GM? Like even today, as we're as we're recording this, you know, put your foot down and say if this is your guy, just say he's the guy, and then this way you can focus on a coach and move on to the other things you need to do for, to prepare for the draft whenever that will happen, and start making uh, some decisions to tell the players on the roster for next season that this is how you should be preparing, how you should, what you should be looking for, and how we're going to change the mindset of the team. And this one's even so, more annoying because it's still going on. They haven't correct. given any clarity about anything whatsoever. No, it hasn't. And the thing is, they could have. So, yes. But that but that didn't win. What did win, and this was your vote, Dan, was not firing John Hines oh, yeah. until December. So apathy, I was right. <laughs> well, I guess if you want to... For the record, when I when I said that, that's what I was referring to because it took them way too long to realize that things were going wrong, and I think this was one of the most frustrating things ever because it was very clear that something wasn't right, something wasn't working, but it was clear for much longer than it took to actually fire John Hines. You know, just as a point of uh, context, in last year's awards, in the 2019 All About the Jersey Awards for the 2018-19 season, the worst in-season move was the John Hines contract extension. Mm. He got a contract extension, Dan, in January. Mm -hmm. And in in theory, you could argue that's not really the worst move because, hey, you're just securing your guy at the top. But we got to see firsthand why that was a bad move. And and, and again, this team just fell flat on their face. They went two, five, and three to start the season in October. And it wasn't just a, you know, an acceptable two, five, and three where, you know, you just got outplayed. Like they blew leads along the way. They they basically did whatever they could to break the hearts of the hopeful fan base, Dan. And the reaction to that was, no, he's our guy. We're just going to let it, let this guy, you know, continue being the boss of a losing team until they're really out of it. And then we're going to fire this guy. Basically, they rewarded him for an MVP free campaign that dragged them into the playoffs one year out of four prior to the firing. Correct. I mean, we've established on the site, I've written about this, CJ's written about this, others have written about this, that, you know, this Devils team has not been a good five-on-five team that has not made big improvements in five-on-five. And we harp on the five-on-five stats because five-on-five is the most common situation in hockey if you're going to be a good team a contending team a playoff team you got to at least be good in five on five and even if you're not going to be good at the run of play at least score a lot of goals and don't give a lot up and that wasn't happening either so anyway i mean all i can say to that is let's watch nashville in the playoffs and see well they're they're playing arizona so (laughs) i don't don't know what i want there honestly let's move on to another move Uh uh-huh the best 2019 off-season move. So since we this is a award for this for the season, we we also do consider that the 2019 off-season is a part of that because that's directly leading up to, into the season. And the best off-season move was a unanimous choice for the trading and signing of Nikita Gusev. Goose, yes, this one he you know if not for him I shudder to think how much lower they would have been in the standings too, given the chemistry he found late in the year with Brat and Zaka, and he just got better as the year went on, as we talked about. I think of all the signings that were supposed to propel them, this this is the one that was, it's weird to say least disappointing, but it was actually pretty positive. It ended up being positive. I think that's the key. Like at start, you know, if we, if we made this decision, say back in November, we would have probably said Gusev was the worst move just mm-hmm. because he was that disappointing, but he really turned it around 
And if we're going to be honest with ourselves here, the cost of the trade was a third rounder in 2020 and a second rounder in 2021. It's very likely that neither of those players that will be selected with those picks will be as talented as Nikita Gusev. Yeah, so, exactly. So it's worth. So it, basically, this was this was a good cost to pay to get a player that could help you right away. And while it didn't help you immediately right away, you know. We're going into next season where Gusev is one of the team's best left wingers. In fact, it's, he is the best left winger since they don't have Taylor Hall anymore. So he, he is the guy. Mm-hmm. So Goose. Moving on to the opposite of that. What was the worst 2019 offseason move? And this was also unanimous. Yes, this was something that I remember waffling back and forth on on the call. And then when considering all the factors in the context, it has to be P.K. Subban's trade. Um, to New Jersey, saddled for $9 million a year, and the guy got something like 20, 25 points, maybe. And this is not acceptable for someone who is being paid $9 million a year, a former Norris Trophy winning defenseman, and just prone to so many mistakes as the season went on. Is that, I have to correct you, Dan. He did not make $9 million last season. Oh, okay. okay. He made $10 million. Oh, $10 million. Last okay. His cap hit is $9 million. His salary, his base salary was a straight up $10 million. He was an eight-figure player. That extra mil was all the times on the power play where the puck skips over his stick and then a shorthanded breakaway leads to a goal. It happened more times than I'd care to admit. Well, that's why P.K. Subban lost his spot on the power play. But we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But... I will still contend that this move was a good move to make. Yes. I think because truth be told, there weren't a lot of bad moves in 2019. This one just ends up being the worst by default, uh, just because, as you said, Subban was a massive disappointment. And the Devils did give up quite a bit to get there. So now Steve Santini has not become a regular for Nashville. So that's whatever. And Jeremy Davis, who knows if he becomes an NHL player. He's pro. That's better than most seventh round picks. But you know, we'll see what happens. I think the one that the, the ones that the Devils may be regretting are the picks because mm-hmm. they gave up their top, their second round pick in 2019. Nashville flipped that to Philly and they use it on Bobby Brink, who is one of the players that should have been a first rounder in 2019, but ended up slipping out of the first round along with Arthur Kaliev. Um, Cause I think Brink is rather talented. So Philly, Philly effectively got a pretty good prospect out of all this. And again, and the, the point, picks are not just, you know, the players that they represent. The picks also represent negotiating power. They represent trade exactly. chips and bargaining chips for a team that has lots of cap space, for a team that has a lot of picks. Those extra ones could have come in handy. Exactly. And the same applies to the other pick in the deal, which was a second round for 2020 NHL draft. As as we've done a lot of prospect profiles over the throughout most of May, a lot of those profiles ended with this guy would be a decent second round selection if the Devils had a second rounder, <laughs> and and this second rounder would be a fairly high second rounder, and the word on the street from guys like Will Scout and Steve Kurianos and future considerations and Dobber prospects and all the people who follow prospects are saying that once you get to around 20 25th overall in this draft class, like there's not really that much of a big difference between that and say 60th. So if you have a lot of extra second round picks this year, it's actually a good thing to have because you can take a lot of swings on a lot of interesting talents. Mm -hmm. Well, the Devils, they could have three first rounders, which is always more valuable than having second rounders, but not having a second rounder with this draft class and given where the Devils are as an organization is a bit of a downer. And that would have been fine if P.K. Subban was playing anywhere close to his salary, but he wasn't, so it's disappointing. Yes. The other move I had considered for this initially was Wayne Simmons. 
And when considering the context of they had a bunch of cap space anyways, and they signed him for only a year, this was entirely a you know low risk signing potential reward, but the reward did not manifest. But they still managed to recoup an asset for him somehow because Buffalo is just they're playing. I don't I don't even know what sport they're participating in now but hey they're keeping their gm dan so they must know something great you can take all the veterans that want to go there for a chance at a playoff win only to finish what one point above the devils in the standings that's correct okay so again because of that because he they were able to basically lose nothing by making that signing i rank the simmons one below the suban one okay well let's move on to something more positive the most pleasant surprise of the season Mm -hmm. the best surprise and there were a lot of choices for this one. This one went in a lot of different directions. One, two writers went with Coleman. That was actually my choice because, you know, I expected going into the season that Taylor Hall would be the best skater on the team, but it turned out to be Blake Coleman. Mm-hmm. I think that's a positive surprise. One writer went with Blackwood, which was a fair choice. One writer went with Joey Anderson, uh, stating that he thinks he has a real future after a not-so-impressive rookie campaign in 2018-19. One writer went with Ryan Merkley. Huh. Did I say Ryan Merkley? Nick Merkley? That's correct. I don't know my Merkleys. <laughs> but he went with Merkley, uh, stating that he was very good for Binghamton, turned their season around, and actually has thinks that maybe they could play somewhere in the NHL someday, which is always something. And one writer said our hated rivals being bad is was also a pleasant surprise, which I'm never going to argue against because the Rangers inherently suck. <laughs> but the winner went to Jesper Bratt. Uh, who, believe it or not, Dan, it's easy to forget this, that uh, he was on pace to set a career high in goals and points in his third season in the NHL. He was much more consistent compared to his rookie season. He really wasn't that bad in the run of play. Um, And he's still 22. There's still some upside here. And he's arguably somebody worth building around. So even though he didn't have a lot of gaudy-looking point totals, he was on his way of showing legitimate improvement from his rookie season after a, you know, your, your traditional second-year slump in the NHL. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, for a six-round pick, this is basically house money, right? Like, this is yeah. this is a player who the Devils rarely expected anything from, and then he ended up making the team. And then this past year, we saw him really start to develop his playmaking abilities. We saw his hands come into play as he, you know, <laughs> this will we'll get to this later, but he successfully used the same move on breakaways like four or five times. It's it's proof of his confidence growing, and it's proof that he is able to play and boost up his teammates. Yep. So let's now go to the, the opposite of this, the most disappointing player. Uh, I, I know my vote for this was uh, not shared, but I, I no. think I remembered I voted for Corey Schneider, and that was disappointing to me because he – had started turning it around the season before, and that's why I was very disappointed given the demotion and everything. But yeah, I think the obvious one is uh, who we talked about before, and that's P.K. Subban. Yeah, he won 7-2. to two. Mm-hmm. Uh, You voted for Schneider, and another writer went for Taylor Hall, which is an interesting choice, but I can, I can, kind of, we can, you can have an argument for it. I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. But Subban is clearly the winner for this, and I wrote quite a bit on this because I think one of the things we need to emphasize is that Subban was by no means the worst defenseman on the team this past season. Right. Like, he's better than Mirko Mueller. He's better than Carrick. He's better than Colton White. He's better than Josh Jacobs. He's better than Andy Green. He's better than, you know, you you could argue he was better than Will Butcher in some respects. That being said, 
the expectation going into the season was we understood that he's, you know, he's in his early 30s. He's not the same player that won the Norris Trophy. But the expectation was that he was going to play a lot of minutes. He was going to at least produce on the power play because that's something he's been doing his entire career. And he would be a face of the franchise. Well, he, he hit one out of the three. He, he was such a turnover machine on the power play. He lost his spot on the regular power play to the point where he only generated six power play points, which is remarkable given his entire career so far. And when he was on the ice, the Devils were constantly in their own end of the rink, and his expected goals against rate was only better than the aforementioned Mueller, Carrick, and Colton White. And you would think, okay, but this guy provides offense. But he didn't really do that. He got outproduced by Butcher and Severson, despite the fact that Subban was the only defender on the team to shoot the puck over 100 times. And on top of all this, Dan, he led the team in penalty minutes. He outdid Damon Severson in taking minor penalties, which is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yes, he drew nine of them. But he took 16 minors and one major, which guess what? The Devils had a good penalty kill, but we didn't need Subban to help demonstrate that. Right. I mean, yes, he's still a celebrity. He's still a face of the franchise. He, you know, I'm, I'm happy he's still a philanthropist. He's a good dude for all intents and purposes. He's a handsome dude. But he's made he made $10 million this past season to play ice hockey and be an important player of this team. He was going to be a reason why this team was going to get back to fighting for the playoffs. Like he was in front and center of the team's uh, packages for promotional material along with Taylor Hall, but which I guess is a great way to summarize the season. The fact <laughs> yeah. that I kind of, I kind of had to pause and just go sigh after <laughs> saying that out loud, but this, the, the money alone by, by default makes him the most disappointing. Mm -hmm. And so even though, yes, he's not the worst. Yes. I don't think he's a bad player anymore. I think he can turn around. I think coaching can absolutely turn him around, but this guy did not come anywhere close to being a $10 million player in the NHL last season. Mm -hmm. Not even close. Yeah, agreed. I mean, there's no there's no two ways about it. He's got to step up or they're very much likely to be in a position to send him off somewhere again. And that's entirely possible because his next this coming year on his contract in the following year, yes, he's still getting paid $10 million in salary, but he's getting an $8 million signing bonus, which usually kicks in at the start of free agency and his base salary is only $2 million. So if you're a team out there that doesn't want to pay a big bonus, Ottawa, and doesn't want, wants to have a lot of cap space, but not pay a lot of money, Ottawa, and, you know, wants to bring a player to a change of scenery, Ottawa, <laughs> and could in the future, you know, need a big name to help uh, improve the people's uh, perception of your team, Ottawa. In his home province. In his home province, which includes Ottawa, that perhaps P.K. Subban could be traded again before this uh, contract is over. <laughs> Not that I have any suggestions on where he should go, Dan. Uh -huh. Nothing in Not, particular sticks out. No, no, no in particular. Let's wrap this up because the last two are regarding the youth of the team, sure. I guess, who we're relying on. Best prospect was Ty Smith, and this isn't really a discussion point. No. I mean, everybody voted for him. He's the WHL Defenseman of the Year. He could be CHL Defenseman of the Year for the second straight season. Like, He's at the There's point no where he just has to make the NHL. That's it. We're done talking about him as a prospect. Just make the league. Let's go, buddy. And you better do it because there will be opportunities next season for him to make it. At least he can play in the AHL now. He can. And that's arguably where he should have been. But the whole CHL-NHL agreement, you know, that's where that comes into play. Right. Speaking of the AHL, best Binghamton, uh, Binghamton Devils. So Jeff and his panel, or as he calls it, the panel, they had their own awards post earlier on the Saturday morning as a reward. So I would defer to Jeff and his and the panel since they follow Binghamton a lot more closely, a lot more locally than we do at all about the jersey. 
So they ended up meeting uh, Nathan Bastion as their MVP, but they did give a lot of love to the guys that did win this award among us AATG writers, which were uh, Brett Sini and Joey Anderson in a tie. Um, Sini led the team in goals, points, and shots. He was their top center. He was playing significant minutes. Um, he draws penalties. He does a lot of good things for uh, Binghamton. I still think that he's kind of limited at the NHL level, but you know, for the B Devils, you need guys to be productive and helpful at top, and Sini is that guy. So credit to him for improving in that regard. And Joey Anderson, again, had another strong season in the AHL to the point where uh, Dave Rogan of the panel said the following about him, saying, we've probably seen the last of him in the 607, which is Binghamton's area code, <laughs> unless we make the playoffs, which they would have if, you know, the AHL didn't cancel their season. Yeah. Uh, because he played very strong uh, as the season went on. He finished his uh, AHL season with 15 goals and 19 assists in 44 games. He played in all situations for the B-Devils, and he did have a fairly – you know, hopeful call-up. So, you know, all things considered, he had a very strong growing season. And, you know, just like Smith, he could be competing for a real roster spot uh, whenever we get closer to the 2020-21 season. So those that, that pretty much rounds out the awards in a nutshell. There were some indeed some bright spots. Unfortunately, one of those bright spots is a guy that's no longer a devil and will be playing when the, when the NHL returns to play at least. <laughs> and uh, the worst decisions are te- are decisions that the devils are going to be living with for quite some time. Yeah, this Good was a, a painful year, but I would rather it have gone all in bad like this so they could start making some meaningful change as opposed to the half measures that were taken when the years of success were trying to fade, the half measures of, you know, signing aging veterans to fill stop gaps, which got them into the playoffs, but didn't really have them as contenders in any way, shape or form. If it was going to be bad, I'd rather them, you know, bottom out this year so they can start rebuilding the process instead of hovering around the 10 seed and not seeing any actual improvement, but not having the ability to trade away any of their players to gain the assets that they now have. Yep. And, um, you know, this is kind of where we are. It's like I said earlier, we can't focus on what we uh, we can't unspill the milk. We got to deal with the reality that we have. And we have the management while they have no games to look forward to in the immediate future. They have a lot of big decisions to make in coming weeks, which I hope they will make soon uh, because they could have made some already. (laughs) But uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, this is the time where they need to set it a good direction and they need to make the right call. You know, we're in a um, turning point of many for this uh, franchise and we shall see what that turning point will be, whether they will stick with Fitzgerald and uh, perhaps hire Gerard Gallant as head coach or whether or not they'll go in a different direction for coach or GM. Maybe they'll name a different team president like Mike Gillis. Maybe they'll hire new scouts. There's a lot of things that could happen. There's a lot of things that the devils can and should and need to do as we wait and wait and wait. Lots of and questions <laughs> to be answered, and we wait as the Devils do to learn about their fate in the draft lottery. That seems to be the next major milestone, but also to wait on the executive decisions that they make internally. So in terms of league milestones, look forward to the draft lottery and more announcements about that. And in terms of their specific franchise, hopefully they um, you know, make progress in their search for both a general manager and a head coach. But yeah, that's been our look back at the... 2019-2020 season. It's a very forgettable one. I'm sure no one will forget it. I mean, when I say forgettable, it's something that I want to forget. It's something that I won't forget just because of how catastrophic it was top to bottom. But really, if this is a harbinger of good things to come, then it was all worth it. 
as ever, we shall have to wait and wait and wait and wait to see. And while we wait, we'll continue to bring you Garden State of Hockey on a weekly basis. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Let's go, Devils, and let's hire some executives. Let's hire some people.